Hello and welcome. This is the Race and Podcast, a series of interviews and conversations hosted by the Society of Architectural Historians Race and Architectural History Group. The purpose of this podcast is to examine the historical intersections that exist between race and the built environment, from specific studies of architecture to the expressive and material cultures of different groups, and the implications of infrastructure and policy initiatives. If it exists in the built environment, then we will find a way to discuss it. In this episode, we talked to Diane Harris, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Washington, about her examinations of whiteness and race in both suburban architecture and the work of Frank Lloyd Wright. The host of this episode is Charles Davis, Associate Professor of Architectural History and Criticism at UT Austin's School of Architecture. We hope that you enjoy this episode of the Race and Podcast. So I'd like to welcome everyone to our conversation today. Today we're speaking with Diane Harris. I'd like to give her an opportunity to introduce herself. So our very first question is simple and straightforward. Please give us your name, affiliation, and a general summary of your research specialization. Well, thank you, Charles. Uh, Diane Harris. I am currently Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Washington and a professor of history here. I'm an architectural landscape and urban historian by training. And my research specialization has for many years focused on the very broad topic of race and space. I began my scholarly career way back looking at American topics, North American topics, and then switched from my doctoral work to looking at villas and landscapes in which folks had exerted different kinds of authority over inclusion and exclusion and control of nature. And then, uh, and that was sort of a topic on 18th century Northern Italy, and then quickly moved back to working on U.S. topics. And shortly after I began my work, which was looking at ordinary suburban houses in the United States, began to really ask more and more questions about why there wasn't more in the field that addressed the question of segregation and exclusion and really was looking for work that focused in particular on the unit of the house itself and thinking about race. And so that's an area in which my scholarship has really kind of moved and stayed for probably the last 20, 25 years. And what's really interesting to me is this continuing thread of examining power relations and the ways that power manifests itself physically, both in buildings, but also in landscapes and the ways that we relate to those spaces and structures, which I think is very interesting. And it reminds me of sort of the way that Del Upton talks about the transformation of vernacular architecture studies in the U.S., moving from objects to landscapes, including issues of cultural studies, and uh, just trying to understand more broadly how this works. So it's a, it's a really wonderful trajectory to keep in mind, and I think it should be inspirational for those who are looking at architecture but trying to understand how it imbricates other areas. Uh, let me move on to our second question. Your research examines the understudied role of whiteness in American architecture more generally. How would you define whiteness 
And what methodologies have you developed to trace its effects in architectural history? That's a great question. And I think maybe to a way to start, it's a complicated question. So maybe a way to start for me would be to go back and re-examine or retrace my steps to talk about how I became interested in thinking about whiteness and architecture. And it's interesting that you just mentioned Del Upton's work. Del was one of the faculty with whom I studied when I was a doctoral student, a master's student, and a doctoral student at Berkeley. And he's been a huge influence on my scholarship. Certainly some of the earliest work that he was doing, both in the classroom, Del always asked questions about belonging and exclusion and about the sort of ways in which very large and complex contexts informed the history of the built environment. That was really fundamental for me and, and really formational in terms of the way I think about my scholarship, really formative. Some of the earliest work that we read when I was a doctoral student at Berkeley stuck with me forever. And one of those pieces was by a scholar named James Borchert, who wrote a book called Alley Life in Washington, D.C. I think I got the title right. And that book was the first thing I can remember reading that really looked at race and the built environment and the urban environment. And it was fascinating to me. And I just remember thinking about how in that book, that scholar, that historian helped me understand a way of looking at the city that I just hadn't thought about before as a white person, that there were parts of Washington, D.C. in its history that had been invisible to me because of who I am, my own subjectivity. So that stuck with me. And then articles like Adele's article, White and Black Landscapes, that's not the whole title, but, and I think it's important that it's actually white and black landscapes, not black and white landscapes, also was a really formative essay for me to have read. And one of the first pieces I read where someone was really carefully and thoughtfully examining in a very deep way, the inscription of racism and race in the built environment. There have been many other scholars. I have to say my former Illinois colleague, Rebecca Ginsburg's work was also really transformational for me. When I met Rebecca, she was working on, it was, she was working on her dissertation and she was then working on her book about the landscapes of apartheid in Johannesburg and looking at the houses that workers lived in, in the backs of suburban houses in Johannesburg and the careful detailed examination that she conducted again, of the ways racism that, I mean, toxic, as it always is, deeply toxic racism was shaping the lives of the inhabitants in Joburg. So many scholars who, who shaped my own work, but I had to have to say, it took me a while to get a more sophisticated sense. I had to do a lot of reading about race in the United States to catch up because that's not typically part of what you do as an architectural history doctoral student. And I was fortunate when I got to Illinois to be in a university at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign to be at a university that had a very rich life around campus in the sense that scholars there were eager to keep their doors open and talk with you, to go sit with you in a coffee shop and talk with you for a couple of hours and share ideas. And one of those scholars was David Rodiger, who um, I first approached when I began working on my project about ordinary suburban houses and was just framing the questions. And, you know, I started out with really kind of traditional architectural history questions. like Why do these houses look the way they do? And why did they cost what they cost? And how are they constructed? And how did they spread across the U.S.? And just reading as much as I could. And I was very fortunate to be in a couple of contexts in Illinois with scholars from a range of humanities disciplines who started to ask me good questions. And I remember one of them saying to me, well, of course, you're going to be asking questions about race, right? 
And the truth was that I had been, I just hadn't been finding very much. And I said, well, yeah, of course, but I was really stuck because the architecture um, and architectural history books that I was reading about ordinary post-war houses in the United States would have at most like a paragraph about this. And they'd just sort of say, and of course, these houses were largely available to whites alone. And I just remember thinking, okay, and then what? And I could find some more at that time. And, you know, keep in mind, this is kind of a long time ago now. This is probably like close to 20 years ago, probably is 20 years ago, you know, digging around. But they're just in terms of the architectural history, there was very, very little. Dave Rodiger was incredibly generous. I asked him to have coffee with me. I sort of framed the questions I was asking, and he opened up a whole world of scholarship to me and just gave me people to reach out to, bibliography, asked really hard questions that were just essential to the way I began to think about the work. And it was really through Dave then that I began to really think, okay, if I'm going to understand these houses in terms of race, I really need to understand the ways whiteness works. I need to understand whiteness as a construct. I need to understand its history. I need to understand the ways it operates in the world. I need to understand the ways it hides in the world, the way white supremacy hides in and through whiteness. And just began reading and reading and reading and reading. And of course, now there's a great deal more to read than there was then. But I think the work that Dave pioneered with a cluster of other scholars who really kind of opened up the field of critical whiteness studies is itself really pretty new. I mean, sort of that work starts to emerge mid to late 80s into the 90s and takes off from there. But it was still pretty new then and, and controversial. And I guess it remains so in some circles, not in others. But it was really approaching this through the, the lens of critical studies of whiteness that I began to really ask a whole different set of questions about architectural history. Well, that's fascinating. And also this, for me anyway, the realization that you worked directly with people like Del Upton and David Rodiger, who I've sort of read with fascination in terms of how they're able to sophisticatedly and deftly get at the subtleties of both space and experience of space, but also the ways that these racial ideologies pervade things, both invisible and invisible ways. And I've been very impressed with your scholarship on the vernacular housing of the United States, particularly through spaces like Levittown and others. And just encouraging us to look at it again, like to see what's sort of invisible, um, unstated, but commonly known and in this kind of ubiquitous work. So that's really great there. Let me move on to my third question. When did you first become interested in Frank Lloyd Wright as it relates to your research on race and suburbia? That's a great question too. And I want to start, I want to be clear about the fact that I really don't consider myself a, an expert on Frank Lloyd Wright. There are people who have devoted the entirety of their career to write, and that is not me. But I became interested in Wright probably like so many architecture and architectural history students do, a major figure in the field. And you know, listen, I love a beautiful building as much as the next person does. And Wright designed some incredibly beautiful buildings and buildings that capture our imaginations. And he was a dreamer and someone who himself was incredibly skilled with form giving and who worked with teams of people who are equally skilled or who he taught to be skilled with form giving. So of course, I've been interested in him, in him in the ways that anyone who's interested in architecture is and would be. When I was first taking architectural history courses, and again, I was fortunate enough to be taking some of those with Del Upton, and really Del was the first person who taught me anything about Frank Lloyd Wright, and it was in his architectural history survey course. And I remember it was, again, through that exceptional critical lens that Dell uses in his work. And he 
talked about, he was looking at one of Wright's houses and he helped the students in the class see that Wright was adhering to a very traditional set of domestic norms in his buildings. And that struck me as being sort of fascinating that this person who was able to think so freely about form and in such innovative ways and about materials and so on, really wasn't reimagining societal norms at all. So that sort of stuck with me. And then in 1993, while I was still a, a, a doctoral student, um, I think it was the second Society of Architectural Historians meeting I ever attended, and it was in Charleston, South Carolina. And I had the opportunity to go visit the Aldbrass Plantation that Wright designed in the 1930s. And it had just at that time been recently purchased by the movie producer, Joel Silver, who has purchased several Frank Lloyd Wright buildings. And he was in the process of restoring it and so on. And I was there with a couple of architectural history colleagues and looked out into the landscape and saw that, you know, first of all, it seemed to me even then, knowing as little as I did, that there was a thing called a plantation in the 21st, in the 20th, then the 20th century, 1993. And then looked out in the landscape, there was the main house, and then there were these single room buildings that clearly had no electricity and no facilities. And I remember thinking to myself, those look like slave cabins. That's really weird. And that also just stuck with me the whole time. So these thoughts were in my mind about race, about right, about his adherence to societal norms. And then as I began to study race and architecture more, that was always kind of in my mind. And then I remember it was when I was serving on the Buell Center board at Columbia, I was at a conference and someone was talking about rice and I was asked to be a moderator. And I said, look, we have to remember that this is a man who spent the entirety of his career in the Jim Crow era, right? Like many other architects, and we don't talk about that, the entirety of his career was in the Jim Crow United States. And yet there's never mention of that. And there are people in, in any of these drawings we don't see people of color represented. We don't have any idea how Wright engaged with the rigid segregation of his times. And you know what we know about Jim Crow now is that people tend to think that it was a phenomenon of the South, but it was a phenomenon of the United States. And it remains so in many ways, right? In different ways. And I remember asking that question and sort of got silence from the audience. So these ideas, these questions about right and race had been percolating, right? Sort of stewing for many years. And then it was in... 2017, when the Frank Lloyd Wright at 150 exhibit was at MoMA, and when the Buell Center for American Architecture was also launching an exhibit at the Wallach Gallery, um, Reinhold Martin, who was running the Buell Center, asked me to give a keynote lecture for the opening of the Buell Center's exhibit that was in parallel with the MoMA exhibit. So I gave the, a lecture at the Museum of Modern Art that also allowed me for the first time to have access to many right documents that I had never seen before. Through the great generosity of the staff at the Buell Center, they helped me get access to a range of documents I'd never seen before, right? And that's when I began to see some things that made clear that Wright actually was thinking about race in ways that we could see both explicitly for the first time, though not, not lots of documents about that, but enough to show, to frame a context for his way of thinking about race. And also that that the work that I had been doing that I've written about is sort of learning to see what's invisible also became super helpful, right? To see about what he was explicitly not addressing as well as what he was explicitly addressing. And so that's kind of how 
my interest generated. And because for that paper, and because Reinhold knew that I had worked on, you know, suburban housing and the Wallet Gallery exhibit focused on Broadacre City and also on looking at Broadacre alongside the rise of public housing in New York, that kind of became the focus of that paper, looking at right and race and suburbia and Broadacre. So that's how that all evolved. It was a lot of fun. Oh, that's really fascinating. I mean, there's a lot there from my perspective in terms of unpacking your sort of the gradual ways in which you were starting to see these two parallel fields of study, sort of whiteness study, Levittown, suburbia, and then understanding Frank Lloyd Wright sort of working in parallel with that. But then even as you said, being situated within Jim Crow period of American culture and American development. And if one used that frame to analyze architecture during that time period, a lot of things start to come into high relief that seem to be invisible and sort of unknown. So for me, and in addition to that, I think also what's key for me in what you mentioned is the archive, the way that the archive on right, and probably even which has still to be looked at some of the archives of his clients, personal correspondence between him and his clients, his clients ind independently of him, uh, the way that race seems to have a life of its own in those spaces. Those two things, I think, are, are really interesting. So I want to ask you a follow-up question in relation to those things. The first is sort of the parallel worlds we tend to hold architects in versus the fabrics, the, the vernacular fabrics that you study. I'm wondering, why do you think Wright's racial thinking has been so long ignored, while the racial animus of a place like Levittown is so well documented in architectural history? And I'm speaking as someone who teaches history surveys. It's always there. Levittown, Pruitt-Igo two touchstones about where racism has material effects, but very rarely do people think Frank Lloyd Wright. So why do you think it is that, that this is segregated in our minds and maybe just revisiting the ways that you gradually pull them together for yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I just want to, before I move into the bigger question of that you asked, just to go back to the archive and mention that when I finally was able to see those drawings of Alt Brass, those outbuildings, those single room buildings, are they're labeled Negro building, Negro buildings. So they, they were actually 1930s slave cabins, right? So the archive had a lot to tell, it turned out, some explicitly in that way and others implicitly. You know, the, the scrawling of the words darky village at the bottom of a, of a plan for a, a village. So something's quite explicit, but much that was much less so. It's more rare to find the explicit words, right? So thinking about why we haven't thought about right and race is really a great question. And I think it has to do with, a, with there are many, many factors. I mean, one of them is the, the longstanding whiteness of the field of architecture and the profession of architecture. And it, and it remains a very white profession today and one that has and one that is very dominated by white men still. It is a field that is so deeply and thoroughly woven through with the privileges, the unearned privileges that accrue to white people, that it has hardly had the, I don't want to say it hasn't had the ability to self-examine. There has been no will to self-examine. There's been very, very, very little will to self-examine and to ask who's not in the room, who's not at the table until very recently, like the last few years, very recently, right? It's a field that has not, and because of that, 
has elevated certain kinds of questions and made them seem as though they are the most important and sometimes the only questions that can or should be asked about the built environment. So that questions about form and style and genealogy of a building and the traditional foundational, the traditional questions that were at the foundation of, of the field have until very recently been seen as the only legitimate questions to ask about architecture. When I first started asking questions about race and architecture, I got a lot of pushback and people saying, well, that's not architectural history. That's not what we do. You can't really prove that. From more progressive circles, that's not still really a problem because that was solved in the civil rights movement. We don't have segregation anymore. Now, I don't think most scholars would say that today. I think that in the past 20 years, we have come a long way. I want to think so. I think there are still parts of the discipline that are far behind. And the profession itself is still dismally behind because architectural education hasn't changed very much in that same period of time. We have a long way to go with the ways students in professional degree programs are educated. There's so much packed into a professional curriculum that they're hardly given time to more deeply explore the questions that I actually think they most need to explore, which are about history and race and gender and right, all kinds of contextual issues that are really shaping the, and have shaped the field for many years. But I think, you know, Wright in particular was held up and still is as a genius, the kind of God in the pantheon and, you know, the highest level of the pantheon. And so therefore above reproach, not to be critiqued. And I think there's also a sense that Still, in our histories, when we merely try to portray people as the flawed humans that we all are, there's tremendous resistance. Right in many ways, as I point out in my, my work on him, was entirely unexceptional for his time in the way that he approached issues of race and gender, if he thought he was approaching them at all. He was entirely unexceptional. So while we have only wanted to think of him as a virtuoso and as someone who was extraordinary in so many ways, in many other ways, he was entirely unexceptional. And that hasn't been an, an acceptable narrative in the field that has wanted to identify geniuses as exemplary. There's so much there, actually, to unpack. I'm just going to comment on a few things very briefly. So one is your mention of the types of questions that emerge in what seems like a kind of well-studied oeuvre of work when different people who have not been in the field previously come to look at those questions. And so when they come to the field and they, they look, they notice different things than those who have seen it otherwise. And I'm thinking particularly of your comments on the whiteness of the field, but thinking about the ways that whiteness has been identified, both by people like David Rodiger, Noel Ignatiev, and others in whiteness studies as a kind of political structure, but also in line with people like uh, Linda Martin-Alkoff and Sarah Ahmed, who um, think about it in phenomenological terms, in terms of experience. And when the same types of subjects look at the archive, there's a kind of familiarity there, a kind of like welcomeness there, because you see much of yourself in, in that image. And, and so that kind of projection leads to the 
a questioning of the role of biography in architectural history and the ways that it perpetuates certain readings, certain mythologies, and lends itself to a kind of blindness that isn't intentional, but just sort of is part of the cultural context. And I think that's really interesting. I also do wonder about the nature of architectural education and the ways that architects tend to think of themselves as being socially progressive enough to build for the future in a projective way. So we tend to want them to be more progressive than perhaps they are because of their perceived role of shaping the built environment versus this idea of vernacular architects who study or people who study vernacular architecture, understanding the specificities between racial and ethnic groups, what they produce, this idea of the unlettered being sort of more local, regional, uh, versus the genius architect who sees beyond those things. For me, Wright is an interesting figure because he's a kind of regionalist within this kind of international space. And so it, it almost seems natural to start with him seeing the way that race and ethnicity, perhaps even gender and other local concerns, concerns specific to certain populations, might appear in his work versus what is much harder to trace in more international style folks or folks who are more abstracted or or think of themselves as removed from the context. So, I, I mean, just in terms of in the context of starting a semester, structuring a, a history survey, how one might be able to get students to see these relationships where they might not be apparent in the studio context or even thinking about precedents and other things. I think that your comments are very useful in that trajectory. So I'm just going to close with one simple question is very broad, given your experience of slowly coming to this field and understanding it both from the perspective of architectural history, vernacular studies, whiteness studies, and then particularly Franklin Wright studies itself, and the ways that these separate fields have slowly converged in your own mind and in giving yourself the benefit of time and conversations and scholarly investigations. Where do you think we need to go? in the future in terms of right studies, the role of race, either specifically there, or even just more broadly in terms of how we think race and architecture relate to one another, given how still uncommon the pairing appears to be within our discipline. You've just said so much that's so rich, Charles, and I, I'm really grateful. I want to say I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to be in dialogue with you. I've learned so much just from listening with you this morning, listening to you and talking with you. But to answer your question, I mean, I would say the same thing that I've said before, which is that I think that the pathway for the field, whether it's for right, studying right, or anything else in architectural history, is to acknowledge that it's always important, not just appropriate, it's important to always ask how race matters in anything we're looking at. And to acknowledge that architecture is about race, even and especially when it's not found in a space that we understand to be about race or have understood to be at race. So, so we ask about race and architecture, even when we're not looking at a so-called ghetto or a barrio or a reservation or a Chinatown, right? That, but understanding that the entire built world is always about race, whether we have seen it that way or not. And perhaps especially in the environments that we've associated with whites. And to ask 
how not just the buildings themselves, but the artifacts that attend to the built environment. And through that phenomenological lens that you mentioned that Saramad and others have elevated, how do we understand experience and race in the built environment as well? So for me, it's that, you know, always asking that question, no matter what it is we're looking at, whether you think it's about race or not, it's about race. And that's certainly true in the U.S. context, but I think it's actually true in a global context. And there's more and more outstanding scholarship that's showing us how that's true and where that's true and how to understand architecture in that way. Doing so doesn't diminish the fact, and I'm saying this for more conservative scholars who have pushed back so hard on this, it doesn't diminish our ability to appreciate the beauty or even the genius of the people who've made extraordinary works that we enjoy, but it makes them more real. It's the real picture, right? It's a truthful picture. It's a more accurate picture. And it helps us understand more completely how deeply significant the built environment is to understanding our past and our present and our future. This is a very good uh, way to, to end our conversation, I think, because there still is a bit of hero worship, but even Beyond that, practically speaking, particularly people like Wright, Sullivan, some of the, the more prominent figures in American architecture, there's a lot of tourism around these figures. There's a lot of investment in them. And so I can understand people's reticence and fear that, oh, well, do I have to give it up? Or uh, am I being a bad person, a bad liberal, a bad racist to investigate these things? And But understanding that it's, it's a much more realist way of understanding history and that it's required. We need to know where the biases are embedded within our discipline, regardless of whether it's Frank Lloyd Wright or unknown architect. It's just a way of understanding the effects of racial ideologies and discourses uh, within our space. And I think that that's a, a really good way of understanding, coming to terms with why this is a useful element, a reflective element of our uh, discourse. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. We could probably speak much more <laughs> if we were to, to get more specific, but I appreciate you taking this time to do this, this brief overview. And I would like to welcome our listeners to take your conversation and to compare it with the collection of others that we have just on this figure of right to see how it is that it might impact their own thinking, whether that's in, within architectural education or for those just interested in built environment as a whole. Thank you again Thank you. so much. Thank you so much, Charles. It's been a real pleasure. That concludes this episode of the Race and Podcast. For updates on future episodes, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Race and Podcast, all one word. All music in this episode is from Rob Hamilton on his albums Enchanted Forest, Teal, and Atitlan, which can be found on the Free Music Archive. To access the show notes and more information on our guests, please visit the Society of Architectural Historians Race and Architectural History Affiliate Group page at sahraah.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.